0: You're listening to a talk from the 8th Annual Smoke Farm Symposium, presented by KUOW 94.9 Seattle. Here, Smoke Farm's Brendan Kiley introduces historian and MacArthur Fellow Mott
1: Green. Thanks for coming back. Uh, I said we were going to have round two of science this afternoon, and that will be courtesy of Mott Green, Um, who is writing an essay that will appear in the second volume of Black Box, uh, which should be coming out in a few months. Um, And he's working on a book now called Science Now, uh, which he describes as being about the effects of neoliberal economic doctrines on the practices of the sciences since the 1980s, and that this talk will be a kind of pilot sketch of this book that he's working on now. Uh, he was the first ever symposium speaker here back in 2009. Um, he's a historian of science. He is a MacArthur Genius Fellow. He's a professor emeritus at University of Puget Sound. He has written about computer modeling, uh, European economic history, uh, and, of course, about science. And one thing I love to tell people about Mott is that when he was giving his you know, first talk here, Uh, about science and the way scientists think and how they maybe need to think differently. There was a long conversation afterwards with the folks sitting where you are now, and somebody said something to the effect of, so are you saying that scientists should all take psychedelics? And he said, without even pausing, oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) which got a big laugh. Um, But I believe he believes is also true. Um, So I would like to welcome to the stage to talk about science now, Mott
0: Green. it wasn't really that dramatic actually it's the the real the real thing was it turned out that i was talking about the physiology of imagination and and it turned out in a a survey of scientists about 20 percent of working scientists admitted taking ritalin off prescription in order to stay awake longer and do more science and then somebody asked me if if um if taking drugs including psychedelics or ritalin was okay for scientists and i said if turned out that they were really made them more productive. It probably should be mandatory in order to get an NSF grant. Okay. Um, so so um, I'm a historian of science, which is to some people odd, but it's no odder than the history of music. There are people who play musical instruments and people who write about music, and then there are people who write about writing about music. So you just saw a real scientist, Ken Williford. So he's somebody trying to find order in nature, and What I do as a historian of science is I draw the box around Ken and and his science, and look for pattern in the way that he looks for pattern in nature. It's a kind of a second order deal. So, and and my topic now is I don't want to get too prefatory; I'll never get started. Um, I'm I'm interested in science since 1980. Um, uh, It's kind of in some ways it's an arbitrary time zero; in other ways, not arbitrary. But there are two things that happened since 1980 that are everywhere evident in science. Um, The first is the omnipresence of very powerful computers as an aspect of doing any kind of science at all and access to that computing power as a precondition of being able to do significant science. Just absolutely have to do it. The other thing, which I think is really interesting, is um, the disappearance of the notion of science as something where a single person working alone like Charles Darwin or Albert Einstein, does science right, and so there are no more single-authored papers in science. None, except there are a few in cosmology, and a few in pure mathematics. But if if you go to Nature magazine, which is one of the weekly science magazines, science in the United States, Nature in Great Britain, um, what you find is, and I, I did this by actually counting. An issue of Nature from 1950 and an issue of Nature from 2016 have the same number of articles in them, but they have eight times as many authors in 2016 as they had. So the the minimum number of authors you find on any published scientific effort these days is two. Um, The modal number, the most frequently observed number, is eight. And um, this year, in March of of this past year, we arrived at, for me, a really interesting milestone, which was a, a paper in science um, on an issue in fundamental physics on gravity, uh, which had 1,013 authors. (laughs) In in fact, it had so many authors that the published pages with the names of the authors on them consumed more paper than the actual results of the paper itself. Um, so, So that's an interesting thing. Right there. That's right. That's that's why the time zero, the end of the individual author and the ubiquity of the computer. Um, and, and then I got thinking also about because I I, I spent forty years teaching that, that. very often the image of a human activity that we teach to students and the actual practice of that activity in the real world are very different. And and the way I describe the book that I'm working on now, Science Now, to to people who I talk about with it is that, you know, when you were in eighth grade civics, you were, you were taught about how a bill becomes a law. And my contention is that the actual practice of science today has as little to do with what we teach students science is like in school as your eighth grade civics class about how a bill becomes a law has to do with what goes on inside the beltway in Washington DC today. In other words, it's essentially zero. Okay? It, it's a theoretical construct of what might happen in an idealized world, but it bears no relationship to actual practice. Okay, so, now, um, since 1980. Towards the end of the 1980s, a science journalist named John Horgan, who'd been used to interviewing scientists about thrilling Theoretical breakthroughs and individual scientists talking to them about what they were doing and, and, and the new things they'd found out noticed that, the, the, uh, that his, the fodder for his journalistic efforts, major theoretical breakthroughs, was drying up. There weren't any. And so, he, what he did, he went around and uh, did a census of all the leading figures in science who would talk to him um, about this problem or this idea. And it was a very impressive list. It included, you know, E.O. Wilson, Richard Dawkins, Noam Chomsky, Stephen Gould, Freeman Dyson, Francis Crick, Ilya Prigogine, who you saw in Ken's talk, um, Stephen Hawking and others. They all agreed that the pace of theoretical novelty in science was slowing down. Um, that there were no major theoretical breakthroughs being made and none in the offing. I'm not talking about no new science being done. I'm talking about nothing in physics that replaces quantum theory or nothing in genetics that replaces DNA, things like that, the the kind of of blockbuster theoretical developments we were used to in the 20th century. Uh, Towards the middle of the 2000s, in 2004, a a, a working physicist named Lee Smolin uh, wrote a very interesting and and controversial book called The Trouble with Physics, which some of you may know. Um, And he, he does there's a war in theoretical physics between the guys who do loop quantum gravity and the guys who do string theory and he's a loop quantum gravity guy and he said we have this dispute that's going on and on and on he said but basically our shame is that I belong to the first generation of theoretical physicists since the 1860s he got his PhD in 1975 who cannot point to a single fundamental breakthrough in physics in the course of our entire careers and the trouble with physics is that it's slowing down and stopping so so, so they have to, Horgan and and, and uh, Smolin have have different analyses of what was going on. Horgan's analysis is probably the more compelling. S- Smolin's analysis is that the that the, the string theory people are evil and they have to be stopped. Okay. <laughs> and uh, Horgan's conclusion was was I think uh, sort of persuasive and more interesting and engaging to people because it and also because it infuriated everybody he'd he'd. Um, uh, interviewed in his book, all of whom attacked him for having written it after being interviewed in it. Because what he said is, what if we're coming to the ends of human knowledge? What if we're coming up in things that we really care about, like the world of the very small, you know, quantum physics, the world of the very large cosmology, what goes on inside our own brains, neuroscience, what if we, are, we have got to the end of what we can find out? And no, certainly, and we're at the end of science now. Is this maybe? So he he calls the, his, the subtitle of his book was "The Limits of Knowledge at the End of the Scientific Age." So, now, so I've thought a lot about what what Horgan did and his conclusion, and I think he was on to something. Um, but uh, when, but it reminded me of another puzzle in the history of physics, and it's a set piece that you teach when you teach the history of physics when. Um, When you talk about the end of science, it it depends on what you mean by end and what you mean by science. Um, When Michael Faraday, the discoverer, developer of the idea of electromagnetism in the 19th century, was asked a question about how can there be action at a distance? How can the sun over there affect the earth over here with so much space in between them? And he said, how could there be action at a distance? And he said, well, it depends on what you mean by action and what you mean by distance. You know? And if you mean by action something bumping into something else, no. Okay? But if you imagine the world filled with a force field, then the earth and sun don't have any distance between them. So, so in a strange way, that got me thinking that, that Horgan had got something right, which was science was moving, but it wasn't moving in the direction that we had seen it more new theory, more individual great achievements from Darwin and Maxwell and Faraday and Einstein and Planck and Crick and Watson and and all the other sort of um, individual names that we can give to new theories, um, that science was changing direction. So, So here's what I think is happening, has happened to science since 1980, and then a short analysis, I think, of why I think it's happening. Science is moving, But it's not moving forward by changing theory. It's moving mostly by lateral filling in. One of the things that um, the computational power has allowed scientists to do is to answer a number of questions posed by major theories proposed since the middle of the 19th century, which were simply too difficult to calculate mechanically or by hand. Um, As a friend of mine, a physicist friend of mine who I used to teach with used to say is, For years and years and years, we studied equilibrium conditions, not because there's any equilibrium in nature, but because equilibrium stands there long enough to look at it, right? It's sort of like when you have art students paint still lifes. It's not because still lifes are interesting. It's because they don't move, you know? And you do that first, and later on you can get to the more dynamic stuff. Well, one of the things that computers have allowed the study of have been us to study... Uh, problems that were too hard for us before. And since these questions were pressing to scientists whose careers had begun when they were already too hard to answer, but now they weren't too hard to answer, a lot of energy is, is going into that. Um, the, the next thing that's happening, and, and this is also has a, has a sort of a lateral move, is that there's a lot of lateral bleeding of... bleeding. I don't, maybe I don't mean bleeding... Um, a lot of lateral movement of techniques and ideas from one science to another. Sort of like what Ken was talking about. It's like lateral gene transfer, only it's techniques from physics jumping over into geology. I mean, I, I spent most of my career as a historian of science doing history of earth sciences. And, I mean, in, in, in the 1970s, basically, when I was doing in the field in geology, um, instrumentation consisted of a good pair of boots, a, a, a Brunton compass, a pocket transit, Um, a rock hammer and a six-pack of beer, right? And you spent a lot of time in the field, and you found stuff out. And um, um, now, most of the things that are done in in geology that are are of great importance use magnetometers, mass spectrographs, side-scan radar, uh, seismographic equipment, radiometric techniques... I have a friend at the University of Washington and a colleague who's an expert on tsunami deposits. She studies fossil records of great um, tsunamis. Um, she spent a number of years in the 1980s investigating tsunami deposits on the east coast of Chamchatka, Kamchatka, an island in the Russian Far East, you know, crawling through on bear trails, waving bells to keep the big bears off, and, and fighting off the mosquitoes, and camping out. And, and over the course of three years, She found a number of tsunami deposits, which she was later able to investigate with her graduate students. And Later on, when um, Google Earth came along, she decided to go back and have a look at Kamchatka with Google Earth. And she found out that what had taken her three years to find on the ground, she could find in about three hours on Google Earth. They were all visible, and they are available to anyone. You could look them up yourself. If you knew what you were looking for, you'd be able to see them. so that's what I mean. There's an excitement about using the shared techniques to answer questions we already have. Um, with the filling in of, of science with lateral transfer of techniques in sciences and answering questions which are abundant within existing theory, there's another thing that's happened, um, and that is a kind of shift culturally everywhere this this sort of presages the second part of my talk of the primacy of technology over science If, if you ask people today do you have confidence in science and they say yes and you ask them why they usually say because my cell phone works right not because they have some confidence in some body of theory it's that they have access of devices which they know were created by science which actually work and therefore there has some background in their everyday life to that. Um, this, this notion that science and technology are close together is very, very new. I mean, Ken showed in an interesting synergy that I'm finding fascinating between our talks, that picture of the Trinity explosion. Um, uh, nuclear fission was discovered scientifically in 1939. By 1945, there was an atomic bomb. That is the closest... Um, that's the most contiguous shift from a major theoretical development to a technological application in the whole history of science, a six-year lag. Very often, lags are 50, 70, 100, 200, 300 years. People know scientific principles, but nothing happens in everyday life to change it. Um, that's changed now. And, and so that most of our experience of science now is not an experience of science. It's an experience of technology. And this has led to this this focus on technology, on sharing of techniques between sciences, on using existing science to build applications, has led to a very interesting thing, which I think is in some ways subversive of science as a quest for understanding, um, per se. And that is um, a shift towards favoring manipulation of the world without understanding what it is you're doing. In other words, being able to change something and taking advantage of that but not being particularly concerned about it. Um, when, When Noam Chomsky, for instance, the linguist who invented the idea of generative grammar and showed that there's probably a universal grammar that underlie all languages, wanted that further investigated, was asked what he thought about Google Translate. He said, I hate it. And somebody said, why? And he said... Because it's a toy. It's a toy that lets you. It's a toy that lets you turn one language into another language by pushing a button. But it doesn't tell you anything about the origin of language or about the the, the grammatical structure of different languages. It just. It's not science, is what he was saying. It's technology. Um, Facebook, which with which most of us are familiar, um, uh, uses the notion of um, small group networks, a kind of. Uh, Node and spoke networks in order to map who our friends are and so on to figure out how to send us marketing messages. Political campaigns use this to figure out which neighborhoods to target to find out who we should vote for. Um, this this social network um, technology is very highly developed, but Charles Kedushin, a sociologist, who wrote a really quite good introductory book a couple of years ago called Understanding Social Networks, said almost as an afterthought at the end of chapter 8 of his book on understanding social networks, he said, you know, the technology that we have shows us how groups form and how they spread, but we actually have no understanding of why human beings form groups or why they form the groups that they do. We can see them do it, we can manipulate them doing it, but there's actually no money and no effort going into the scientific question of why human beings form groups the way they do. So, Do we have guesses about why they do? Yes. Do we have any really good science about why people form groups? No, we don't. So so those are changes that happened within science, with science taking some things that it already had and spreading it and these technological applications falling out of it. Now I want to talk about why I think that Horgan was wrong about us coming to the ends of human knowledge, why I think we're nowhere near it, why I think that theoretical developments of great import lie in the future for us. Um, so I'm going to go back to, to 1980 for a second, all the way back to 1980. Um, the, the, uh, the period from 1945 to 1975 is called, in, in France, is known as the the uh, Trente Glorieuse, the 30 Glorious Years. This is a phrase that's made, been brought over into English recently by Thomas Piketty's book, Capital. Um, and they're called the 30 Glorious Years because... Um, The the huge destruction brought by the Second World War destroyed most of the capital holdings of large firms and individuals and uh, created a huge engine of economic growth which resulted in a compression of wage inequality. That is all of a sudden all working people were making a lot more money. Um, Economic growth was 3.5 to 5% a year. Things were getting bigger, things were getting better. Um, there was lo- universities expanded, social services expanded, the welfare state expanded. Um, uh, there was a sense that generally things were getting better but But towards the end of the '70s this this played out socially, and this was also an incredibly fruitful time in the sciences, um, the beginnings of modern genetics of modern computer modeling. Um, The structure of of what what Ken again showed, dissipative structures, the nonlinear dynamics, these things that were too hard to investigate that we could now do. Um, This was also a great time for science. The response to the slowdown in economic growth in the late 70s in the Anglo-American world um, was was the the Reagan-Thatcher neoliberal revolution. Um, The the rise of neoliberalism, which is... which is a zombie idea that will not die, right? This is a description of this zombie idea, that that government should get out of the way, that markets apportion things naturally and equally, that they are self-sufficient and equable, that that anything that is an externality, like a labor union, should be gotten out of the way. Um, uh, This ideology is beginning to show cracks, but it's absolutely in control of um, the world we live in today. Um, and as someone said, I read an article recently and he said to to live in the United States today and not to think about the word neoliberalism, it would be and not to know what it means would be like being somebody who lived in the USSR in the nineteen fifties who had never heard of communism. It's it's an idea about how social and intellectual life should be organized, which is governing the way things work, but there's almost no discussion of it. So so that's the ideological sidebar. Of, uh, but I want to talk about the effect of this on science directly, this, this kind of let's get government out of the way, let's let market forces go. The, the direct expression of, of this neoliberal revolution in science in the 1980s was something called the, the Bay or the Bay-Dole Act of 1980, named after Birch Bay and uh, Robert Dole. And the idea was to use market forces to jumpstart scientific innovation. And the way this was going to be done was to allow scientists in the United States for the first time who had money from the NIH or the NSF, that is tax-funded research, to develop a proprietary stake in that science. That is, if you found out something that was valuable, you got to patent it, trademark it, or copyright it. This had never been possible before. Um, The NSF always, with the NSF asks for under the Bay-Dole Act is they ask for a non-exclusive license for the public to be able to use the results of the research. But if you have it, if, if you've invented something yourself, if it's pharmacological, if it's nanotechnology, you can make a spin-off and run off and make as much money as you want out of it. So... Um, Not only did this legislation allow this to happen, but it actually required it. Because if you did not make any move to patent or copyright or trademark what you had found out, you lost all intellectual property rights in it five years from the expiration of your grant. Okay, so there was this very, very strong change in the intellectual property regime driven by the government in 1980 from public to private ownership of science with the hope that this would restart the economic engine of the, of the 30 glorious years. It, I find it impossible to emphasize the effect this new intellectual property regime has had on the practice of science. Um, the first thing that happened, and most evident to me in my own experience, is um, the firewall between not-for-profit organizations and for-profit organizations has entirely collapsed in the United States. Um, Research One universities are, are for-profit research firms now um, who are in the business of uh, building laboratories for sciences that they will attract in the hope of, that they will find patentable discoveries that the university can then take a share of the, the, the royalties and then use to keep themselves going in an era a neoliberal market era in which funding for universities is going down because the market's going to take care of things. I'm, I'm not even necessarily criticizing this. I'm just describing a trend. This has, has really happened. This isn't something that's about to happen. This is something that's already happened. Okay. Um, and uh, something. the next thing um, that goes with this, once you turn a not-for-profit into a for-profit entity, the norms which govern conduct, within the, that is, the rules of of Engagement for doing what you're doing shift. Um, the, the rules of doing science set up in the 1940s were really sort of extracted from the practice of science in the first half of the 20th century by a sociologist of science named Robert Merton. Um, he, he said the, the, he had an acronym for it, CUDOS, C-U-D-O-S, which was science should be communal, it should be universal, it should be disinterested, and it should be governed by organized skepticism, communal meaning that all results should be made public and shared, universal meaning that you don't care about the source of it, that all things are subject to the same test when they come forward, disinterested means that your research is not something in which you have a preconceived idea about how you're going to get the answer that you want and then make some money out of it. And organized skepticism is the principle that a scientific career is better established by destroying someone else's idea than by confirming it, okay? And really that is the way that science has historically proceeded, is by organized skepticism. And when I got thinking about this, under the new intellectual property regime of of this neoliberal post-1980 revolution, I would say that the new norms of science are are what I would call slick. Um, Secretive, local, interested, confirmation bias knowledge. That is... um, People do science now, and they do not share it. Um, where it comes from is often more important than what it is. It's governed by economic interest, and instead of, um, of organized skepticism, there is a, the role of managers in saying, have you got it yet, have you got it yet, have you got it yet, has led to a regime in which you get confirmation-biased outcomes. In other words, where you get people tilting the table to make the stuff that they're doing look better than it is. So. Um, and, and this is, seems to me um, a, a good deal of modern science has shifted over from kudos to slick. Um, this has been, by the way, this is not a, a surmise that I'm making. There are a number of really interesting books have been written about this with titles like Science Bought and Sold, Science for Sale, Science Smart, How Economics Shapes Science. And, and uh, these are all... Uh, dispassionate discussions of, of what happens to a scientific enterprise when it turns from a something driven by this instinct for curiosity that Ken was talking about to <laughs> how can I make some more money. And uh, so I, I think here, here's the upshot of what I think has we've discovered about this after um, 35 years under this regime. Um, firms and universities operating as firms Actually, can't do science. That is, they're not very good at finding out anything new. Um, I don't know, uh, Jaron Lanier, who's a, uh, um, a, a sort of a, a strange internet guru kind of guy who shows up at the Santa Fe Institute or Microsoft every once in a while and then disappears back into a pile of his self invented musical instruments, um, <laughs> has said that he said, Here's the thing you have to understand. He said, Business does not understand the concept of investigation without manipulation, does not understand curiosity-based non-commercial activity. It just doesn't get it, right? So so let's have an example here. I'm very, very interested in the fate of when Google decided to divide itself into an alphabet company, and they had a division called Google X. And Google X was supposed to be like the old Bell Labs Um, The Bell Telephone Company had, based on the experience of Thomas Edison and his electrical laboratories, had built a division where they had a building in New Jersey, and they hired really smart scientists, and they said, go to New Jersey and work in the building and find stuff out. And they really never asked them to deliver anything. They just said, find stuff out. And this went on for decades. So, you know and so these guys discovered the three-degree cosmic background radiation Claude Shannon developed everything that we now know about the important parts of information theory Um, so Google thought this was great because fundamental discoveries came out of a for-profit firm that developed an arm that was exempt from the pressure from shareholders and and managers Um, it it lasted for four years and it's now over and what happened is The managers started coming to Google X and saying, where's the stuff? (laughs) Where are the breakthroughs? And they say, well, it's a few years off. And they say, well, that's not good enough. We're not doing this anymore. So the new rule at Google X is that anything that you think can't be turned into a profitable commercial application within three years is now something we're not going to do anymore. And we won't be hiring people who don't do this. Right. So now this this is this is. This is not the only example of this. One of the things that's begun to show up in management literature... This is a concern, actually, in people who are in firms that are in the innovation business and who are worrying about the fact that they're not getting the innovations at the pace they need to keep going. And what the management literature shows in a retrospective conducted between, what, 1993 and 2013... Is that unless you have an absolute firewall in a firm between the for profit arm and the investigated arm, that exploration will always be crowded out by exploitation that is the pressures to make money if they exist anywhere within the division are so overwhelming that the scientists who are supposed to be looking who are supposed to be looking for new stuff can 't do it now. This raises a larger issue that I don't have time to go into today, but it's the difference between novelty and originality. Um, novelty is striking, and it's fun and exciting. And one of the reasons is that it's, a, it's an interesting twist on something that you already have a context to put it into. So when you say, that's so cool, usually what you mean is that you're 70. And, and, <laughs> and, and the, other thing, the, the other thing that you mean is that I understand the framework in which this fits, and this is a really interesting development. Um, Actual originality is quite different. Originality is uncomfortable, disconcerting, context-breaking, and since it doesn't fit, um, uh, not only do managers not like it, but scientists don't like it. I mean, I learned this as a historian of science, studying the history of the continental drift controversy. The continental drift controversy made geologists crazy, because they were asked to make a decision about whether it was true or not. And so they had to decide, well, what if I decide and go with the people who say that it's true, and it turns out not to be true, okay, then I look bad. But what if I say it's not true, and then it turns out that it was true, then I become the ridiculous old guard. So they don't like originality anyway. And, uh, and, and so the way that major scientific advances actually tend to happen is that a few opinion leaders demonstrate something is the case beyond all reasonable doubt. And then what you get is if you've ever been out on the Washington coast and look at sanderlings on the beach, and as you get close to these beautiful tiny birds running along the beach, you get closer and closer one takes off, three take off, and ten take off, and then all of a sudden a thousand take off all at once. It's called flocking behavior. This is how scientific communities change their minds, by flocking behavior. Um, and, And it has to do with the discomfort of originality. So um, Brendan how much time okay so so that's a, one other thing that I want to talk about is that um, the, the immense pressure on working scientists in managed conditions to produce innovations and new science far faster than it actually happens in real time Real intellectual time has has caused a, an immense um, storm of scientific misconduct in the world. I don't know if you if you go online now. There's a very interesting website called um, or, or um, yeah called Retraction Watch, which which follows the retraction of scientific papers based on plagiarism, double publishing, irreproducible results. Um, there there are other things. There's there's a, a, a community called Pub Peer which actually um, goes to um, uh, uh, scientific papers and begins the, the discussion of, of the paper almost from the moment it's published on a website so that you can get actual feedback as to whether it, A, is it new, B, is it true, C, is it important, and so on. Uh, most often, is it new? No. Is it true? No. Is it important? No. <laughs> okay. Um, there's a... a, a, a Statistician and scientist and MD named John Yonides, I-O-A-N-N-I-D-I-S, who is now at Stanford, who has been very concerned about um, irreproducible results in medicine, uh, particularly in clinical trials. And he's 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 not some he's not like John the Baptist, you know, waving the jawbone of an ass and storming around and saying everybody has to stop doing what they're doing. He's quite welcome at medical meetings, and and he's tried to help. Um, medical practitioners doing clinical trials explore why so many clinical trials turn out to be false. In fact, he even wrote a wonderful paper called uh, Why Most Published Science is False. And, and it's, it's false because of confirmation bias, small sample size, and the pressure to produce results that aren't there. Um, uh, there's, another, there's another thing, there's a project called COMPARE, C-O-M-P, capital A-R-E, um, which is investigating NIH-funded clinical trials that, that um, change in the middle of the clinical trial, start changing the composition of the trial and saying what they're trying to find and reporting. So this is leading to new requirements that in order to get a grant and to publish the results of your grant, you have to publish what you said you were going to find out, and then you have to publish how you changed what you said you were going to find out Okay, in order to fulfill the the terms of the grant Um, so um, a lot of this uh, uh, some of this is just malfeasance and a lot of it is deliberate misconduct Um, I found out by talking to the editor of Cell Magazine which is probably the leading um, um, cellular biology publication in the world that they now have on staff Six six full time staffers who do Photoshop forensics, looking for um, manipulation of of micrograph slides that are outside the limits of what you're allowed to do, and they find about twenty percent of the photographs submitted by scientists submitted by scientists for publication uh, have been manipulated in a way um, that is not permissible. That is, in other words, it, it's not just that they are it's not that people are behaving crim- criminally it's a lot of them that they are using off the shelf materials where they're punching a button that says enhance, enhance, enhance and then they end up with a photograph which doesn't look like the original cell and then cell magazine rejects it and they say why and they say because if somebody looked through a microscope trying to find the structure that you said you found they wouldn't be able to see it because it wouldn't be enhanced in the real world but, but um, there's a tremendous pressure for, for marketing um, I found Finally, um, I have a wonderful book. I think it's wonderful because I wouldn't even believe 10 years ago it could exist. It's, it's a, a titled Marketing for Scientists. It's about how to get your ideas out there, how to start your Twitter feed, how to get buzz, how to get going with it, how to get your results out there. And, and, and as, almost as a companion piece to that is, a, is an article um, that, that tried to chart in scientific publications in Science, Nature, and Elsewhere um, the frequency of superlative self-descriptors like robust, novel, innovative, unprecedented, okay? And um, in the period 1974 to 2014, there's an 80% increase in these self-descriptive words in scientific publications. So, so, so it's not that people don't want to invent new wonderful theoretical things. It's just that the way that we're going about it can't make that happen, just now, um, and uh, I think there's, instead of tunnel at the end of the light, I think there's light at the end of the tunnel here, um, a, 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 an economist at the University of Sussex, um, this will be my last point, I think, at, uh, named Mariana Mazzucato, won a prize in 2014 for her book called The Entrepreneurial State, which is not a theoretical book, it's an empirical historical study of innovation. Over the last thirty or forty years, and what she demonstrated is that in the microelectronics world, in most of big pharma and elsewhere, um, venture capital innovation has consisted mostly of bringing to market the results of scientific investigations directed and funded by government programs over a long period of time. In fact, she calls it the entrepreneurial state because she believes that governments are the only institutions that we have actual that have enough patience. To spend what it costs over a long enough period of time to find out anything um, that human curiosity would actually want to know, um, you know. And so, um, so I, I mean, in the end, I find what Ken does is that kind of science, and it's not any accident that's funded by a government. Um, and in the end, finding out if whether there's life in the universe and what it means is a lot more interesting than driverless cars and Pokemon Go, you know. So, thanks.
2: Speaking of the mic, right? Yeah. So I'm torn between either agreeing with everything you have to say or disagreeing, because I was actually a physics researcher from starting my PhD in 84, quit in 2000, went to private industry. And in some sense, everything you say is true, particularly the aspect that um, if you want real innovation, not innovation, real discovery, Yes, it has to be government-funded. I used to say back yes. when I was in elementary particle physics that we should only be government-funding things that have no practical applications for at least a decade. That's right. At a minimum, like, like Ken's research. Okay. Because if it has less than a decade application, you can do it in private industry. The mistake was thinking that universities and the government should be in that game. So you can have innovation at Google through your horizon. You can't have... Discovery, which has 10, 20, 30 years... Right? The Higgs, I was in the paper for the Higgs, for the proposal for the Higgs discovery that just happened two years ago. And that was in 1993. And the program had already been going on for seven or eight years because that's how long it takes to discover the Higgs. And yes. that was even something that was known to be there, was just being looked for. So, so I'm kind of torn, but I think um, what I would say is we need to re... I think you're right. We need to reimagine that who's going to fund... Fundamental discoveries, it has to be government funded. It has to be nonprofits. It has to be some people outside the profit sphere. Otherwise, it doesn't really go anywhere, right? It, you're, it's, it gets truncated. Yes. Actually, my wife's uncle discovered three degree radiation at Bell Labs. He, he experienced the whole thing, up and go, That was an accident of monopoly that that existed. It should not exist in a private company, it, just from the economics you talk about. Yeah. So we shouldn't try to recreate Bell Labs. No, we I should just think so. fund the government science. Yeah, Bell I agree
0: Bell with you completely. Anyway,
2: so I guess I I guess I completely agree with
0: you. What else? Yeah.
2: uh, Very great concern. Um, You've mentioned the universities and their level of investigation and the funding. I wonder if you take that down a notch to our new scientists who are just emerging. Could I get your reflection on public schooling versus investment from the outside and coming up with charter schools?
0: Uh, that's, a, that's not anything that I know about. I, I do know that, that, um, that I'm quite convinced that the way we teach science in the K-12 system is... Um, a mistake from beginning to end, but that's a completely different story. Um, I don't know that charter schools um, would fix it. I mean, when you talk about science education, if you poll people who don't become scientists, the last science that they remember anything about is their 8th grade qualitative earth science class or natural history class. Um, the, the biology, chemistry, and physics that they took in high school, the lab-based, test-based stuff, is gone. And, and even if it's reinforced by a science requirement in college, it's gone within a year after they've taken the class. If you, if you give somebody a mandatory course in geology and then a year later were to give them the final exam in a course that they got an A in, they would get a D in it. There's absolutely no retention. So our notion of how to do scientific um, education is a, a problem that we have not solved. Um, I think young, uh, I think one of the reasons we hold on to the vision of science that we have had and teach it in schools is that that's the science that we want rather than the science that we have, right? And uh, so uh, holding out for um, curiosity, discovery, as opposed to instantaneous application and profit centers is, um, seems to me to be a better vision of what science education is about.
3: I think I might have a few questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. So the first one is about this question of innovation and certainly the restrictions of capitalism on scientific innovation, which you're, you're mm-hmm. making that equation. But I'm wondering if there are other things that have influenced the pursuit of innovation and the manipulation of, of data, like Eddington and manipulating the data to prove Einstein's theory of relativity and so on. like that There are plenty of examples, right, in the yes. history prior to 1980 of that, other restrictions on innovation. So that, I guess that's my first question. The second question is around the <clears throat> more of a disciplinary question around the history of science. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious about why you think the history of science, say, over the history of music, for example, which you started with, uh, why that seems to have been a privileged discipline um, among histories in the university and in higher education. You mean history
0: of science? Mm-hmm. Actually, I think it's the opposite, because nobody writes novels in the style of Dickens anymore, and nobody writes symphonies like Beethoven, but we don't think of Dickens' novels as wrong, or Beethoven's music as wrong. But basically, old history of science is, is, in the main, is the study of ideas we know not to be true. Right, and so since they are the history of wrong ideas, most people are not interested in them. So, so (laughs) university libraries are always throwing out classic works of science because we have this wrong, wrong ideas cluttering up the shelves. You know, I have some of the best items in my library. I picked up for a dollar each. You know, and they they cost three or four thousand dollars in rare book markets. You know, so, um, so that's that about innovation. Innovation is. Innovation is not invention, right invention is making something new, and innovation is bringing it to market and that 's also a very interesting thing because most of the major innovations in the in the major technological complexes of the United States um, required the intervention of the federal government um, to to bring them to fullness that is. Between, it's like sort of the thing we're having with solar power right now. If the government doesn't help it out, it's not going to happen. That happened with motorized trucks after the First World War. Everybody wanted to have motor cars to drive around, like Ford Model T's, but nobody could figure out what a truck was good for because you know, if you had a horse pulling a wagon, it stopped. You didn't have to turn it on and off. It, it ate a little bit of oats and pooped on the ground. You got back on it, and you got going again. It was, there was no maintenance, no mechanical parts for it to break down. And so um, the U.S. government became the, the um, bought, th- I think, 250 or 300,000 trucks from Ford and used them just to get the truck industry going, to, to innovate. Um, uh, the same was true for the tennessee valley authority and the rural electrification administration it became clear that if electricity was going to be sold to the highest bidder that um, rural customers would never be served at all and we wouldn't have had a nationwide electrical grid so i think real innovation it's not just that invention requires government help but innovation requires government help as well okay thanks a lot